Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fit started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And today's episode is, again, a little bit different. You have uh, seen a theme from our, our main weekly episodes uh, from last week to this week. And this week was actually going to be a two-part series or a two-part episode featuring Dr. Oren Franco. And um, a little bit more about Dr. Franco. He did his med school at Harvard Med School, graduating cum laude with honors, so very smart. Uh, he did his residency training in San Diego, and he did a hand fellowship working with the esteemed Dr. Peter Stern in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, he's currently a member of the AAOS, or the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, as well as the American Society for the Surgery of Hand. He is also very active in the California Orthopedic Association and has given numerous talks on private practice, on um, on billing, on uh, on practice models, uh, on a lot of different things. And in today's episode, we talk a lot about private practice. We talk about entrepreneurship in residency, uh, as you all will come to hear. He did a lot in residency, got a lot of publications, started a business. And is also still doing so while in his actual practice. And we talk about private practice. We talk about like what are the different types of private practice. Because as, as, as long as for uh, residents listening to this, a lot of times we are not taught a lot of this information. So we're trying to at least bring some of these things up. So the first time you are not hearing these terms is when you are, uh, are you, you are about to interview for a different job. So we talk about private practice. What are the different models? Some of the benefits and downsides to some of the different types of um, practices that you can join. Uh, we talk about things for online reputation, especially even how to start that as a resident. So we really come go over a lot of good information in this podcast episode. So we really hope you all enjoy it. And uh, please, without further ado, please listen to our episode featuring Dr. Oren Franco. And this episode is actually sponsored by Sergi Survey which Dr. Franco actually started himself. Um, a little bit more about Sergi Survey. Sergi Survey is an automated marketing solution that assists health professionals in building their online reputation by capturing five-star client and patient feedback. Um, according to an article, 90% of clients viewed at least one review before visiting a clinic, and at least 94% agree that one unfavorable review convinced them to avoid visiting a clinic. Um, Surgery Survey's well-structured system significantly improves their clients' online reviews, allowing them to increase their practice and referrals. So please go and visit Surgery Survey at www.surgysurvey.com and learn some more, especially if you're an attending listening to this or a fellow that just finished up and are about to start uh, your own practice. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Franco, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Uh, we are happy to have you on, and I'm uh, looking forward to our talk today. So uh, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much. You have the greatest name of any podcast. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. I definitely appreciate that. And uh, just doing some, you know, looking into kind of some of the things you do and a lot of the talks that you've had before in the past, I already found them to be informative and was writing notes by myself on my computer. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to this. I know we'll, we'll go over, uh, try to go over a breadth of information here, but I, I think this will be, uh, this topic will be really helpful for a lot of people. So uh, again, thank you uh, for being a, a guest and coming on the show absolutely thanks for having me i think what we can kind of just start off is with is just a little bit kind of just getting to know you and just kind of getting a background into into your mindset and then um you know taking it from there so uh just just starting off well you know where, where are you from you know kind of what what was growing up like or what kind of a household did you did you grow up in uh i grew up in la uh my parents well, my dad's from Israel. My mom's American. I've got two younger sisters. I'm the oldest of three. And uh, I would say the only thing that defined my household was high expectations. Uh, basically, it wasn't, you know, if we were going to college, it was where. It wasn't if you were getting an A in math class, it's why isn't it an A+. Plus? Um, I'm sure that's very similar to a lot of doctors out there. Nothing unique about that. Um, but yeah, basically, I would say a pretty typical childhood, just a heavy focus on academics. Uh, but probably one thing that I took with me is that um, my dad is a small business owner and kind of a salesman. He sold doors and windows. So I definitely learned to appreciate the value of sales. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more because I do believe that being a doctor is also being a salesman. Being an orthopedic surgeon, you got to understand how to talk to patients, which are your customers. And my mom was actually a computer engineer. So a lot of the like computer tech side, I probably picked up from her. Yeah. And and um, and just what you're just saying, as far as wanting you to succeed, it, it definitely worked. Because I, I think reading on, I saw you graduated number one in your class in undergrad, summa cum laude, which is, you know, congratulations on that. Uh, and what are some of the the, I guess, tips or tricks that you, that you utilize to help, I guess, with your academically um, to help get you to that point or to get you, was it just consistent studying every day? Was it a, a mindset like, you know, I'm going to be the best that I can every single day or I just study as much or what are some of the things that you picked up? I think that's hard to generalize. I think everyone's got skills. So probably the number one thing to figure out is what your skills are and build your life and your study schedule or your social schedule to your skills. So for me personally, I'm more of a morning person, but I'm also not a big like socializer slash drinker. So it was very easy for me in college to skip the party and go to bed at like, you know, 10, but then wake up at five or 6 a.m. to do my work and kind of just stay on top of things. But that worked for me. I'm not suggesting that works for everybody. You just figure out what works for you and work that into your life. Yeah. And, and I noticed that you have a, uh, a, an interest, or at least you publish a lot as far as, you know, mobile applications and phone and some technology. And w when did this interest come about? Or can you kind of tell me the story of what got you interested in the, in this field and kind of drove a lot of the, a lot of some of the things that you've done in the past, but um, you know, even a lot of the research that you've done and presented. Yeah, that, I actually think this is kind of a funny story. So bear with me for a minute. Uh, I'll never forget 
when I was in medical school, I was at Harvard Medical School and I did some research at Beth Israel Deaconess and I worked with a hand surgeon named Tamara Rosenthal. A lot of you may recognize her. She's done great things, continues to do great things within the hand society as well. And she had a paper that she did as a resident that was called, and I don't want to get the name wrong, but it was something like orthopedic surgery and the internet. And it was published in like 2001. And she was literally, this is what she told me. She was a resident and on call, she would just Google orthopedic surgery. And she just tallied all of the websites that were about orthopedic surgery at the time. And there was like a hundred of them. And that was her paper. And she got a JBJS publication. And I, oh, wow. never, I never forgot that. As a, as a medical student, I thought, that's the kind of paper I need to write. You know? <laughs> so yeah. fast forward about four years, I was a PGY2 resident in San Diego, and we have a dedicated research year. And I said, okay, I've got this whole year to do research. I better make something of it. And I thought, what? is the new internet where I can just write a paper that says the orthopedic surgery of blank and, and come up with something. And I was laying in bed one night. I'll never forget. It was a Friday night. And I thought mobile apps, that's it. The app store. And I woke up a Saturday morning and I sat at my computer and I just typed in orthopedic, orthopedic surgery, hand, sports, foot, ankle, everything I could think of fractures. And I, I basically downloaded and reviewed every orthopedic app in that one day. And there was probably like 50 of them. And I wrote it up and it was a single author publication that got into core. And I was wow. pretty proud of myself, but then I submitted it to the Academy and the California Orthopedic Association. I submitted it to every conference I could and it started getting a lot of traction. So that's basically what started the process. And ultimately what happened is that surgeons kept asking me, what are the best apps? You know, you've written this whole paper on apps. Which one should I download? What are the best apps for learning and techniques? And I got so tired of emailing people that I just made a <laughs> website. I just said, I'll just make toporthoapps.com and now you can go check it out for yourself. And that's how it all started. Yeah. And I, and I checked out that the, the website is still up and running today <laughs> and saw some it hasn't um, been updated in years. Yeah, I know. I saw some. I think it was 2015. I saw some of the uh, the the dates on there, but some of those apps are still live, and I some of them I didn't know about. And some of them are still relevant today, like the AO um, the AO surgery, the AO reference app is still on there. Uh, I think there's one Bone Doctor app you have on there, and I thought it was a good uh, a good summary. And I mean, such a simple thing, but you didn't think like you just like you said, like with your uh, with your first mentor, you didn't think that like, oh, this is. That, that makes perfect sense. Why is it not out there yet? You know, let's go ahead and, and look into it and and um, and uh, publish this. And it's funny you say that because I actually have an article that I, or a paper that I wrote now that I'm waiting to hear back for uh, for publication on social media and orthopedics mm -hmm. and you know the different uh, the different sources you can use as far as residents for like you know um, for videos uh, for podcasts for. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what is it? Video podcasts, learning, you know, different courses, OTA, all mm -hmm. that good stuff. So uh, I definitely, um, I definitely see where that's coming from. And it's very useful as well. And so what did this, did this website start off as a business? Like, did it turn into a, some type of a business? Or was it just like, these are all the things that you can, that you can use? 
Oh boy. Well, yeah, there was a lot to it. So first there was a research component. I actually emailed every ACGME program and queried every resident about whether they use apps and whether they're HIPAA compliant. I asked people about which smartphones they use, Apple, Android at the time, even BlackBerry was there in the mix. And so there were a lot of papers that kind of were generated from the concept of apps in orthopedics. And uh, basically I had a lot of data to share. So there were a lot of publications and because I was getting eyeballs on top ortho apps, I was able to monetize it. Small funny story about how I started top ortho apps is basically, like I said, I wanted to make a website, but you know, websites aren't free and I didn't really know how to make one. Now they're almost free. I mean, buying a domain on Google is $12 for a year, but even at the time I was a resident and I remember going to the department chair at one of our, at the children's hospital in San Diego. And I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, why don't you present that at our meeting? So I put together this whole presentation and I told them what I wanted to do. And they were already aware of some of the work. And I was so nervous presenting. And I asked them, are you ready for this? I asked them for, I believe, $500. And I think they gave me a thousand. And I was pretty stoked about that. (laughs) And then I said, I went to my department chair at the university and said, hey, Children's gave me a thousand bucks. You want to match it? And he was like, sure. And so now I had $2,000 to make a website. Wow. So, you know, it's funny as a resident, that was a lot, a lot of money to me back then. I would never yeah. have invested it on my own. But if there's any residents listening or even medical students, and I'm sure there are, all I would say to you is that what seems like a lot of money at that stage is not. And it should be very easy for you to get that from someone, you know, a thousand bucks. You should probably be able to ask any attending and just say, hey, I have an idea. Would you give me a thousand bucks? And I bet half of them would say yes. If you were really? serious, you were doing. And the, the problem is if you don't do it, you don't know. But, you know, I made the website. I turned it into a business. I started selling ads. And, you know, selling ads is not easy. And I didn't know anything about it. But, you know, I sold a couple ads. I made a couple thousand bucks. Another year, I made a couple more thousand bucks. And, you know, I think one year I even made like $20,000 or something wow. as a resident. That's like, you know, more than that's a gold. third of my salary. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was, that was fun. Yeah. And, and you have piqued my interest because I now have a site as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so when you were selling ads, was it, was it just Google ads that you, you know, like you just, it was, it was it based on the amount of people that came to your site and clicked or yeah. how did you work that out? Sales is so funny. Um, it wasn't any Google ads. I literally just had various, you know, banner ads on the homepage and on the sidebar. And because I had reviewed all these apps, I knew a lot of the app developers and companies. So I would just cold call, you know, these app developers and say, hey, I've got a site promoting your app. If you want me to, you know, basically put an advertisement it's a hundred bucks a month. We could do it for six months and that's 600 bucks. And they would just write me a check. And then you do that a couple times. And before you know it, you've got like a thousand bucks a month coming in. And then I actually got ads from some bigger companies. Briefly, JBJS was advertising. And I got some advertisements from Medtronic because they had an ad 
or sorry, an app at the time. And, and that was like a thousand bucks a month just from one of those. So, you know, it's, it's just kind of random. You, and the thing is, you don't know until you do it. And that's the hard part. So again, my advice is just do it. You know, if there's a cost barrier, find the money and just do it. Because until you do it, you don't know what the potential is. Yeah. And I may pick your brains a little off air <laughs> for the rest of that, but how did you manage? Cause you know, one of the things that you always hear about and everybody has their own different ways of managing and balancing, um, balancing, I guess you call these extracurriculars, but, but activities outside of actual residency. So how did you manage going through residency, making sure you had the appropriate training, you know, your surgical skills, studying for board exams and running, you know, running this business starting, you know, cause you're, you're emailing all that takes time. It takes time yeah. to build out a website. It takes time to yeah. reach out to people, uh, you know, talk with different companies. So how did you mm -hmm. manage, I guess, not even balancing, but integrating yeah. the two. You, it never gets easier. And I'll tell you after residency, when you're an attending and you've got kids and you know, it, it only gets harder. Um, you know, like I said, my PGY two year in residency was a research year. So I viewed that year as kind of a freebie. And so I did a lot of the legwork that year and tried to set myself up for success where, you know, I wasn't having to learn how to build a website that was already done, but, you know, making the phone calls, you know, you just, you just fit it in. You just do it. You know, sometimes you're making phone calls, post calls. Sometimes you're sending emails at two in the morning, you know, when you're on call. And um, my attitude is you don't always have to be running as long as you're moving forward. So sometimes there'd be a hiatus where you just don't do all that much for a few weeks, but you just got to keep moving forward no matter how slowly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, so important because I'm, I'm, I, I hit that hiatus point that you were talking about where I just didn't do anything for a couple of weeks, you know, super busy on trauma. A lot of things mm -hmm. not fell off, but um, not as active, but yeah, it's just like you said, you just got to kind of keep going sometimes and, and just figuring it out. And I, I remember that's, one of the things that is important to make a point of is that if you don't figure out how to balance or integrate things now, it never gets easier. Like when fellowship right. comes, it's not, it's not going to get easier suddenly then. And then when you're attending, it's not going to suddenly get easier then. So if you have things that you like to do, whether it's, you know, even just as simple as exercising, or if you have things like, you know, making a, starting a business or things like that, you just got to figure out a way how to do it because time never, uh, never gets easier i guess per se yeah probably rule number one is you gotta love it you know because all these things are hard it's hard to carve time out of your busy life to do these so if you have the attitude of oh man i'm gonna start a website and make a million dollars like that's not fun that's not motivating that sounds like work but if you're just thinking god i love podcasts and i love talking to surgeons and hearing their story you'll make time for it and you know, sometimes you do a little, sometimes you do a lot. But what's nice about technology these days, it is so easy to do stuff. I mean, you can you can buy a domain in five minutes. You can basically yep. start a website template in about one hour. So, and then you Very just true. work on it in your free time. Very true. There is a will, there is a way. Yeah. And that kind of transitions me into our, our, next, uh, our next topic or something I wanted to touch base on is that you continued these, you know, these entrepreneur type, um, type of uh, activities through your fellowship. And can you kind of tell me the story about Surgery Survey and how this came about? Yeah, so I was, really, 
Hey, absolutely. I was heavily interested in research as a resident. Um, I had a lot of publications and what always irritated me was filling out and completing the, the DASH outcomes questionnaire, which is the disability of the arm, shoulder, and hand. It's kind of the standard patient-reported outcomes in hand surgery. And I said, God, we've got to find a way to digitize this. And I never really got that off the ground in San Diego. But then I went to fellowship in Cincinnati and Peter Stern, my mentor, who I'm always indebted to and grateful for, required us to do a research project. And there was a little bit of funding. And again, it, sometimes it just comes down to a thousand bucks. And I, I, I can't remember. He probably said, yeah, you know, you have a thousand dollars funding. And that allowed me to basically create a digital version of the dash and an automated system that will email patients after surgery. And the idea was if you're having a surgery on whatever, January 1st, then as a patient, you can get a follow-up questionnaire that's a digital version of the dash about three weeks later, and then six weeks after that, 12 weeks, 24 and 52 weeks. So for up to a year, we're gonna collect your outcomes. Not only that, but the system will automatically tally the scores. It'll analyze the data, it'll make charts, and it does it all in real time. So that probably doesn't sound so crazy to your listeners today, but to be honest, six years ago, that wasn't the standard. There were only like one or two companies that could even come close to doing that. And they were very expensive and they were hard. So I made an easier, faster way. So that was fellowship. And fast forward, I came into practice. Obviously, I'm collecting my patient-reported outcomes. I've got a couple other surgeons who are using it, who are friends who knew about it. And I also realized that, you know, in practice, you got to have online reviews. You've got to have a good reputation. And I'm thinking, well, I'm already emailing my patients. And I already know if they had a good outcome because they, they filled out the quick dash. And I know their scores. So why don't I just ask them to leave a review? So I started to include reviews in that system. And then as I'm talking to other hand surgeons, basically trying to pitch them on the system, they said, yeah, well, you know, I don't really care about patient reported outcomes. That's not really relevant, but I would definitely pay to get better reviews. <laughs> so that's how it turned into yeah. basically a, a review online reputation management system. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, especially with the age where we're at now is that what people do and they don't know who to go to is a Google best doctor in San Diego or best hand doctor here, or hand doctor here. And the first thing that pops up, they call the office and try to make an appointment, which is, uh, you know, very important. I think just like you said, online reviews, um, uh, I mean, we, we know that they patients go to places that have good reviews. Same thing we do with restaurants that have great reviews. We go and we check them out and see what other people said. And since doing that and, and starting this, what change in your um, business have you noticed? Did you notice that you got more patients? The, the more, because uh, if you Google your name now in your practice, your name just had over a hundred something uh, reviews five stars your practice had over 200 something you and your you and your partner so have you noticed that you had more patients come to you all after, since you started uh, uh, with these online reviews or I mean it's massive it's such a game changer it's it's weird to me that I still have to convince doctors that this is important I mean I showed up fresh out of fellowship nobody knew who I was within a few months <clears throat> within a few months, I already had like 20, 30, 40 reviews. And I've got patients calling my office asking for Dr. Franco, 
My partner who's been in practice for 25 years, he's looking at me and scratching his head. He's like, what is going on? I mean, he, everybody knows him. He's been the only hand guy in the area. And suddenly patients are asking for me. Not only that, <laughs> yeah. patients are driving two hours to see me. Now I'm in the Bay area. This is a highly densely populated area. Yes, and is. I'm thinking, man, you just drove two hours. You probably drove by half a dozen other hand surgeons just to see me, you know, now I'm yeah. thinking I'm a great hand surgeon, but I mean, I'm a good hand surgeon. There's a lot of good hand surgeons out there. Certainly you didn't have to come see me for your tennis elbow or whatever, you know, kind of non-specific complaint they had. So, you know, to answer your question firstly, absolutely it makes a massive difference to have good reviews. Even taking call, you know, the ER calls me, hey, I got a guy with a distal radius fracture. Would you mind coming in to see it? On the 20 minute drive from my house to the ER, when I walk in, they go, Dr. Franco, it's so nice to meet you. We've already read your reviews. We know you're great. That's amazing. That's That's amazing. So huge difference. Now, there is another side to the coin, which is that sometimes the patients you get from your online reviews are not really the patients you want. This is a little bit more relevant for older surgeons who have a bigger referral network. But basically, the way I put it is anybody who's sitting at their computer Googling for a doctor doesn't have a real problem, right? Now, that might be different for sports. That might be different in spine where you have a little more time to kind of analyze who you're going to see. It's not so much of an emergency. But if you're like a trauma doctor or even hand where we tend to do a lot of trauma, um, you know, the person who's kind of sitting there Googling for the best hand surgeon, probably someone who's already seen two or three other people for their like non-specific hand pain. And those patients can be a little tough. That being said, you know, volume is volume. When you're young and you just got to get your name out there and you've got to fill your, your slots, these are patients who fill your slots and they pay you in dollars. And that's what it takes to build your business and build your reputation. They leave a review and that's how your practice grows. Yeah. And I, you just briefly touched on some of them, but I was going to ask you, are there any other downsides that you know to this? Have people ever left bad reviews and th- that patients that you thought the interaction went great, you know, you, you loved them and somehow they left a bad review. Are there any, I guess, what are the downsides to this? If there Well, are there are, those are really actually a good side to it. So first of all, we all get bad reviews. Every yeah. single person gets bad reviews. And the problem is if you don't ask for good reviews, you're never going to get them. It's only going to be the patients who go online. Keep in mind, it's not because you're a bad doctor. Sometimes they're angry about the wait time. Sometimes they're angry about the parking. Sometimes it's an insurance issue that's completely out of your control that, you know, insurance denied their surgery, but they kind of focus on the doctor. So that's actually a good thing. Sometimes you get those bad reviews and it's an opportunity to improve your practice, but there's very convincing data. There's no question that most patients are happy. So the more people you ask, the better reviews you're going to have. And I actually just wrote that paper uh, showing that for hand surgeons, and we surveyed over 4,000, basically Googling every single hand surgeon, that there is a direct correlation with volume of reviews and score of reviews. So Mm -hmm. the more reviews you have, the higher the score, no question. Now, Given that, because that's, that's something that I've thought of, you know, trying to think ahead of, you know, if we do private practice or academics or whatever, you know, it's it's not 
it's not like you're just out of fellowship and boom, you know, you're making however much you're making. Like you have to figure out how to market yourself and get patients and get people to come see you when they're, you know, if you're in a big city like Atlanta or Los Angeles, there are plenty of other surgeons that have been around for a very long period of time that have large referral networks. So that being said, is there anything that residents or fellows can do to start uh, to start, you know, making that online reputation? Is there anything that they can do? Do you have to be at one facility or what? What's something we can do? You know what? Uh, you can create a Google My Business profile today. It's free. You go to google.com slash business. And that's where you make a profile. Say, you know, your name, Oren Franco, MD. And you could, honestly, you could do it for your residency. I don't really know why you would, but you could even link to your own domain by orenfrancomd.com. That's $12 on Google. Learn how to make a website. These are skills that I think every doctor should probably know how to do. And you can start collecting reviews, have patients leave reviews, have your co-residents leave reviews. I'd be lying if I didn't tell you it was a little bit of a game, right? But we can get into that later. I, I do think it's a game, but I don't think we started it. I think Yelp and Health Grades and Vitals, they started the game and we're just playing by their rules. But the bottom line is if you came out of residency and you already had a profile with 10 or 20 reviews, then when you transition to practice, you now have ownership of your profile. So you just update the information. Now you're practicing in Chicago and this is your new website. This is your new phone number and all those reviews carry with you. So here you are day one of practice and you already have 20 reviews. And the nice thing about those dinosaurs that you are referencing, those attendings who already have a referral network, <laughs> they don't value the reviews. So I could give you literally a list of 200 of the most famous surgeons you've ever heard of who yeah. have zero reviews or less than 10. And so when you show up and you've got 20 reviews, I guarantee you there's a patient out there who's going to be Googling and they will choose you over the other guy because you've got better scores. No question. Yeah. And so say, for example, you're a resident listening to this and you know, you're just, you're you maybe fourth, fifth year, you figured out what you want to do and, and you know that you want to move to a, uh, a big city afterwards. And, you know, you're thinking of, of, you know, making a profile, just like you just said, and starting to see if you can get some people to leave your reviews that way. Cause I assume when you're looking for a place that are looking for a job that the, that the, your eventual employers will Google you and search you and see what they can find on you. And they can maybe see those reviews and that may be something that they can, that could help or go towards your favor. I, I don't, I don't know. I've um, never thought if, of it that way, but you may be right. You know, if, if that plays a part, but is there anything that, is there any way that that could be, could that be perceived anyway by a residency department? Like, do you think, obviously we don't know, there are a bunch of different residency departments and, you know, there are different cultures to everywhere, but could that be perceived as a department as, as, I mean, anything, anything bad, anything good, or no, nobody really cares? You know, it really depends. Uh, I think that there are different cultures in medicine and there are definitely people who are just anti self-promotion in general right? They would never ask patients to leave a review or really talk about how good they are. Uh, I don't think that's as common in the younger generation, people who are maybe under 40 and kind of grown up with Yelp and Google and health grades and vitals. We just recognize that that's just how you do business these days. Now, the truth is residents have online profiles 
you probably have a health grades profile and a vitals profile. Those websites make it for you and they take it from your NPI data. So they pre-populate it for you. So I don't think it's really abnormal for you to take control of your own profile. I mean, if someone's already putting your information out on the internet, you might as well make sure that it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And along these same terms of, or, or the same topic of reputation, what, are there any other tips that, or, or, you know, any tips or advice that you would give to new attendings or new, you know, fellows uh, about, you know, just establishing that online reputation besides, you know, what we, what we kind of already talked about a little bit of the online reviews or anything else that you can, uh, any advice that you'd have as far as, you know, getting a solid reputation? I think there's so much of it. Um, and before I answer the question, I'll just say, I've given a number of webinars through the California Orthopedic Association that are free online. I've given a number through the Academy and some tech talks. And if anyone's listening to this and going to the AOS meeting in San Diego this year, I'm giving a few more in the, yeah, I believe they're called tech talks now. They used to be called the tech pavilion. And uh, they always have ICLs on this topic as well. I'm speaking on one of those. So there's a lot of information out there, but to briefly answer your question, I think online reputation really refers to a few things. It definitely refers to your online reviews and that can be vitals, md.com, healthgrades, Yelp, Google. So take ownership of them, make sure the information is accurate. It refers to search engine optimization, which basically just means that whatever's written about you on the internet is accurate and informative. Whether you're owning your own domain, like your name, you know, md.com or your name, sportsurgeon.com, you can take that over. Um, it also refers to, you know, linking to important things. You might link to blogs or you might have your own blog and put information out there. It nowadays probably even relates to social media, which I'm not really big on, but I do have a Twitter handle, I guess it's called, you know, you, <laughs> yeah. you could. You could be on Twitter, you know, maybe you put out YouTube videos. I mean, all this stuff matters. It all works together. And yeah, of course, just your practice website. But usually that comes along with whatever job you end up taking. Yeah. And speaking about uh, taking jobs, uh, I've heard a little bit about your story of how you uh, were got into the current job of where you're at. But can you explain to the people the story about how you found your job of where you are and how you kind of set that up? Because and then, yeah, the, and then the model of practice you're in. Well, I'll start with that. I've got the best job in the world and I have the best <laughs> practice in the world and I will come out and, you know, you always have to start all these with your disclosures. My disclosure is that I love my practice. I love private practice. And I think that more doctors than would admit actually will be so much happier in private practice because the amount of freedom and flexibility and independence just outweighs so much of everything else. But to answer your question, I actually met my partner at a conference, the California Orthopedic Association Conference when I was a PGY2, actually when I was giving one of those talks about the apps. And we were sitting by the pool because it's always at a fancy, uh, fancy resort. And he's like, hey, I like your talk. By the way, I'm a hand surgeon. I might be slowing down in a few years. Let's keep in touch. So simple as that. Hmm. That was my PGY two year. So over the next four to five years, anytime I was in Northern California, because I was in, I was in residency in Southern California, I'd visit him. 
if I was there for a hand society meeting or an academy meeting or even on vacation, I'd swing by, I'd meet his practice, or I'd, I'd meet his wife, I met the practice. And then in fellowship, when things really start to get serious, I interviewed at a couple of other practices, larger multi-specialty private practices. And at the end of the day, my wife and I decided that we thought there was a lot of opportunity in this small private practice. It was very unusual to join one guy who's in solo practice and make it work. But without a doubt, it's been amazing. Basically, we have a fairly small office. We have five exam rooms. We do have occupational therapy. We have a small surgery center in our office, which is an accredited ASC. And then I also take call at a level two community trauma center. And I work at another uh, surgery center as well. So um, that's my practice. And it works great. Yeah, I think that was a a very organic um, way of how you know you started or got it you know started your practice and being able to did you did you have to interview or was it just like hey I I I want it uh, let's do it uh, <laughs> I mean we had multiple <laughs> interviews there was never like a right. come in you know put on a tie kind of interview yeah. but uh, and to be honest that's probably how most of the best jobs are found. You know, at the end of the day, orthopedic practices are businesses just like any other. And it's more about finding the right person than finding a position. So if there's a place you want to be or there's a practice you know of, you just call them up. And I don't care if you're a PGY2 or PGY3. I would love for a PGY3 to call me up one day and say, hey, I'm from your neck of the woods. My wife is from your neck of the woods we're probably going to end up in the area. Do you think in four years you'd be interested in having another partner? That would be amazing because that's kind of how long it takes to really know if you're a right fit for each other. You know, people talk about how there's a greater than 50% chance that orthopedic surgeons are going to switch jobs after two years. But maybe that's because you really don't know if you like a job until about two years. So if you start kind of the process four years early, perhaps you're less likely to switch. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And you're going to learn a lot in the process. Yeah. And that is one tip. And, and do you have, yeah, I know you have a whole a webinar on this as far as how to find, how to find uh, jobs. And we'll take a deep dive into private practice here in a bit, but for the, you know, PGY four fives, or even the fellows, who are now in this this era, at least for the last year, it was a little bit harder to, to get a job because, you know, secondary to COVID and, you know, there being less patients. Uh, what what tips do you have for, you know, the fourth, fifth year fellow that is looking to go into private practice and kind of decided what kind of a, uh, you know, what fellowship they're going to do? Uh, what tips do you have or what would you, what advice would you give for them as far as how to find a job? You know, it's exactly, it's exactly what I just said. I think calling up practices, calling up hospitals. Let me give you a little story um, just to help you understand in my area why it's not as simple as you think. So for example, my partner and I are both hand surgeons and we're both have a pretty full schedule, but not super full. So if someone walked up to my door right now and said, hey, I want to be a hand surgeon. Do you guys want a third partner today? I would say no, we don't have the volume. However, what you don't know 
is that there are only two other orthopedic surgeons in our community who do shoulders and who do total joints. And the other thing you don't know is that there are three other orthopedic surgeons in our community who are going to retire in the next three to five years. Now you would have no way of knowing that. There's no way to find out. These are all people who are in solo private practice. The other thing is that all five of those people who I'm referencing take call at the hospital and they are all over 60 years old and they don't want to take call anymore. So again, if you called me and said, hey, I'm looking for a job. Do you have room for a third hand surgeon? I would say no. But if you called me and said, hey, I'm out of residency. I'm looking for a job in this area and I'm interested in doing all of orthopedics. I'd be willing to do shoulder and joints and take call at the hospital and build up my practice because honestly, I don't just want to do carpal tunnels. I kind of want a diverse practice. I would tell you, I could give you a job tomorrow and I could tell you that within a year, you would easily be busier than you could ever want to be and be making more than a million dollars without question. So, you know, you, but you don't know, there, there's no job that's posted that's saying, right. hey, we anticipate having more volume and there's a lot of call available at the hospital, yada, yada, yada. You just have to talk to people. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a great, um, great story and great tip. And I hope people are, are listening and taking notes because that is, um, that's a gem that you just, just stated there. And You know, it's like everything, you know, it's just, it's small and it's local and you'd be surprised. You might have, the, you know, it might be the biggest practice you've ever heard of. And maybe you even have like a, a co-resident who started at some practice and they're like, oh yeah, you know, we don't have any, we don't have any room for another partner, but you just never know. There could be some, and name the specialty, right? There could be a foot and ankle person who just retired, or maybe there's a local podiatrist who used to get all the business and they just left town. These things can happen very, very quickly and there's suddenly a great need for a particular specialty and you just never know. Now, is it frat? Like, for example, if you don't know exactly where you want to be, but you know, you want to be in a big city, for example, because you mm -hmm. just, you, you like cities and you like the, uh, the vibe or the environment. And so you're mm -hmm. thinking, Oh, I could, I could live in Los Angeles or I could live in Texas or I could live in New York. Is it frowned yeah. upon to reach out to the different practice, you know, all of those find practice in all those places and reach out to all of them? Like, is that something where they'd be like, oh, this guy here is just trying to find anything or is that normal? Or, you know, what is, what are your thoughts on that? Um, no, I, I don't think that's frowned upon in any way. I would say that's probably unusual to be quite yeah. honest. I think most people have a sense for where they want to be, whether it's because of your spouse or because of your family. Uh, most people are generally pulled in a certain direction or at least a certain region. You know, I want to be within two hours of Chicago or something like that. Um, so that definitely helps. Um, you know, and it's hard to say. I, yeah, I don't know. I can only speak personally. If, if someone reached out to me and they're just looking for the right job and you think that it's a unique opportunity, then I think that's perfectly good. Boom. You have just finished part one of our two-part series featuring Dr. Oren Franco. That was a lot of information that we just 
covered. I really hope you were taking notes. When I listened back to this again, I had to go in and take some more notes. And a lot of these things I am um, I'm actually doing myself from what I learned from Dr. Franco here. So again, then the next episode, we'll get further into private practice. What are the different types of private practice models? So again, if you're looking for a job or if you will be in the next three, four years, because according to our last episode with Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason, you should be starting to uh, consider and look at these things at least two to three years in advance. So we get into the different types of uh, private practice, what they are, kind of some of the general ups and downs to each of those. So um, thank you all for listening. If this is your first time, hit the subscribe button, of course, and tell a friend and follow us at Nailed It Ortho. Until next time.